Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1000 Hours Outside and Nicholas Carr, the author of so many books, but The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, which I'm sure so many people have heard of and read in a bunch of other books is here. Welcome. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. So you are the author of incredible books. The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain has been translated into more than 25 languages. Pulitzer Prize finalist. Wow. And then you also have all sorts of other books. The Glass Cage, Utopia is Creepy. That's the most recent one, right? Right. And also The Big Switch and Does It Matter? <laughs> a lot a lot of books written for newspapers, magazines. You've been on all sorts of television and radio programs. What an honor. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited. I love this book. I think it's just such an important topic for parents. Interesting book that you wrote in 2007. The staying power is there. Isn't that wild? Yeah, it's, I mean, when I wrote it, it came out in 2010, but I started writing in 2007. So 2007 through 2009. So quite a while ago. And it started off as kind of a book about my own personal experience because I had spent a lot of time online. And I realized I I was having trouble concentrating and was distracted all the time and wanted to check email and everything. When I wrote the book, I didn't know if this was just kind of a personal story or if it was something broader. But unfortunately, I think everything we've seen since then with the explosion in smartphones and social media apps and everything else, it's kind of made the situation worse. (laughs) My worries have, as I say, unfortunately kind of come true. And, And I do think that all the time we spend online gathering information, being distracted, being interrupted really does kind of undermine our ability to pay attention and to think deeply and to read deeply and do anything that requires kind of sustained concentration. Mm-hmm. You talk about in this book, and I'd never heard about it before, except for in Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is one of my favorite books by Neil Postman. Right. And he's passed on, so I'll never get a chance to talk with him. <laughs> but similarly, the both of you were able to project into the future and to take what's happening right now, because in 2007, I think you're pre-iPhone, right? Right. Uh, yeah, 2007 is the year the iPhone came out. So this, when you're writing this book, and so you, you don't really have the long view yet, and Neil Postman didn't really have the long view yet, but you're able to take, I guess, to like the philosophy of it and project in that's why I think it's just still such a powerful read, even though the technologies have changed quite a bit since that 2007-2009 timeframe when you were writing it. But you talk about this concept, and so did Neil Postman, about you would think that, well, I'm just reading the news online. I used to read it in a paper. It used to be delivered by a paper boy, and I read the news, and now I read the news online. It's just information in a different place. And you talk about how that's actually not true. You say, we have come to pretend that the technology itself doesn't matter. It's how we use it that matters, we tell ourselves. The implication is that we're in control and the technology is just a tool. And Neil Postman said, technology is ideology. Can you explain that? Because I had never heard that before, never thought about it. It's not the common sense thing. It just thinks like, oh, whatever. I'm just reading it now on the computer. Right. What's the difference? Yeah. And so first, let me say, Neil Postman was also a big influence on me and He's often described as a media ecologist, which means he and other communication scholars like him argued that our communication tools, you know, going back to telephone and onto radio and TV and so forth, aren't just tools. They create a new environment, a new ecology, and we reshape the way we think and the way we perceive and the way we interact with other people 
to adapt to the new communication technology. And that's the thrust as well of my book, The Shallows, that we're mistaken if we think, oh, you know, reading something online or on our uh, on my smartphone or whatever is the same as reading it in a newspaper or a book because each of the technologies creates a different environment that surrounds us so if you if you're reading a book if you're reading words on a piece of paper the paper itself kind of becomes a shield against distraction there's nothing else going on it's just the words on the paper and that focuses your attention and i think human beings have trouble focusing in general we're very distractible if you think about a computer screen or your phone, those words are surrounded by distractions. You're getting notifications. You know that there's probably text coming through or emails or somebody on social media is saying something that you might be interested in. So that experience of reading in this case is very, very different, even if the words are exactly the same on a printed page versus a screen. And I think it goes well beyond just reading. It's everything we do when we socialize or whatever, we're kind of, when we're online, when we're looking at our phone screen or our computer screen, there's this kind of competition for our attention. And so we're only half paying attention at most, no matter what we're doing. And so this very, very much changes the way we think, the way we interact, and kind of everything we do. Do you think that most people don't know that? Well, certainly back when I was writing The Shallows, you know, 12, 14 years ago, however... 15 years ago, I don't think people understood it. We were still so enamored of having this ability to get all this information, Googling stuff, you know, things that used to take a lot of time and be difficult to do and require a trip to the library. You could just do it immediately. And I'm not saying that's bad. I, I mean, that's a good side that you can access this information. But I don't think people then were thinking about how deeply this influences the way we think and the way we do or don't pay attention. I think now, as we've had more experience with this, many people, whether they're thinking about themselves or their children, are worried that this technology has kind of hijacked our minds and we're always distracted. We can't do anything without thinking about, oh, maybe I should grab my phone and see what's going on there. So I think we're much more aware of some of the downsides, some of the negatives of the technology. But I still think that people tend to think that, oh, it's a tool. It's just a tool and we can use it the way we want to use it or not use it. And what I'm saying is it's a tool, but it's much more than a tool. It does really change your psyche in some deep way that you may or may not be aware of. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Neil Postman said, we have yet to learn what television is. This is the same sort of thing. Right. Because we love technology. So we rush to use it and incorporate it into our lives. And he, he saw that with television, and I'm seeing it with the internet and social media and stuff. And it's only later after we've kind of become addicted or at least habituated to the technology that we suddenly say, oh, maybe, maybe, there's some, <laughs> there, maybe there's some problems here. Okay. So one of the problems, and this is, I think, something that everyone has experienced, is that even when you put it down, it's still affecting you. So you say, whether I'm online or not, my brain now expects to take in information the way the internet distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. So what is that all about? How come when we put it down, it's still affecting us? Yeah, and this is this is something that, that in the last 10 years or so, there have actually been lots of experiments, psychological experiments, cognitive psychologists looking at this. And what happens, one thing we rarely think about is why do we pay attention 
to one thing and not another thing. You know, when we go through the day, there are different things we're paying attention to. And some are memories, some are the people we're talking to, some are something coming through the media. Sometimes it's just looking at a tree or something. Why do we pay attention to what we pay attention to? And brain scientists have found that there's this very complex network in our own brains, and they call it the salience network. Salience meaning what stands out to us. And they've looked at this and, and they realized that there are certain things that grab your attention, anyone, things that are new or novel that you haven't seen before, things that are somehow about you or about your social set. Human beings are very kind of, we're always thinking about how we fit into society, what our statuses, are people talking about us, things that are familiar to you and yet you're interested in. And now you think about a computer or even more so your phone. It's got everything that grabs our attention. All our photographs are there. People are talking to us or about us all the time through messages, through Instagram, through Facebook or whatever. There's always something new. You know, even if your phone's in your pocket or your pocketbook, you can grab it and you'll see something new that's probably interesting to you and even about you. So we've created this device that has a constant hold on our attention because everything that our mind wants to pay attention to is enclosed in that little phone. So whether, and this comes through through these experiments I'm talking about, whether you're looking at it or whether it's in your pocket or on your desk or whatever, part of your mind is thinking about it and is monitoring it. One way I like to explain it is if you see a parents with a newborn baby, and you're talking to them, and the baby's in the room, maybe in a crib, asleep, you still know that they're so tuned into that baby. You know, half their mind, at least, is monitoring the baby because they want to hear if the baby moves, if it makes a noise. And this is kind of the same effect our phone has on us. It's always on our mind. One of the things that you talk about that I think a lot of us are dealing with is how it's affecting our concentration, and in particular, you talk about reading. There are some really interesting quotes in here. Some of them were yours, and then some of them were from other people. You talk about this. Scott Carp confesses he has stopped reading books altogether. Bruce Friedman, I have almost totally lost the ability to read and absorb a longish article on the web or in print. And I think you said... My concentration starts to drift after a page or two. I get fidgety, lose the thread, begin looking for something else to do. So this is something that seems serious. But then you hear on the other side where some people would say, oh, everyone's just adapting to this new thing, this new technology, this new age. What would you say? Well, I mean, it was this phenomenon of feeling that I was losing my ability to concentrate and particularly losing my ability to get immersed in a book or a long article. And this was something that was, you know, I, I was an English major long ago and loved books and stuff. And so I realized, you know, the more time I was spending online, the harder it became to focus my attention, to spend a lot of time reading. And this was before smartphones around, but I'd feel the pull of my computer to go check email or whatever, or to do some Googling. And it turns out, and I mentioned this before, we human beings, our natural state is not to concentrate on one thing. And you can understand this kind of from an evolutionary standpoint. One thing that kept 
us, as well as other animals, alive is the ability to monitor everything that's going on around us, to sense threats that were coming or to spot the berry bush where we could get some food. Our kind of natural tendency is not to focus our attention on one thing. We have to train ourselves to do that. And it's very, very important, I think. And unfortunately, I think, and I think this is true of adults like me, who even if we didn't grow up online, uh, it's certainly even more true of kids, we're not training ourselves anymore to pay attention because we've got this steady stream of information that's all of interest to us coming at us all the time. And people, you're right, people will say, well, we're adapting to it. My response to that is, yeah, that's exactly the problem. We're adapting to it. We're training ourselves to be distracted, to send messages and get messages all the time, but we're not training ourselves to stop at times, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting, you know, you should spend all day, you know, by yourself in a room reading, but we're losing the ability to screen out distractions and say, look, I really need to concentrate. Maybe it's concentrate on a book. Maybe it's concentrate on a train of thought you're having. Maybe it's concentrating on a conversation, an important conversation you're having, but that really requires us to have the ability to not be distracted. And I think that's what we're losing. This is so important. You had a sentence in here that said, the very idea of reading a book has come to seem old fashioned, maybe even a little silly, like sewing your own shirts or butchering your own meat. It's really eye opening. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last minute get together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 
and use code OUTSIDE120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code OUTSIDE120 at goodchop.com slash OUTSIDE120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash OUTSIDE120, code OUTSIDE120. And even you talked about how we read differently. This is something I didn't know. And we talk a lot about eyesight because when you go outside, the full spectrum light helps your eyesight. But also when you move on uneven terrains, it's helping your eyes learn how to track together. And it's an important thing that can happen, especially in early childhood when it comes to reading. We're trying to get our eyes to work together so that we can read those pages. But you talk in this book, and I didn't know this, that when you read on a screen, your eyes actually don't even function the same way that when they read a page in an actual book. Right. There have been these very interesting experiments. They put things called eye trackers on people's eyes, which can actually monitor what their eyes are doing and how they're focusing and stuff. And it's very interesting that when you do that with a person who's reading on a printed page, you know, sometimes they're skimming and scanning, but often they get immersed and you can see them go, you know, line by line across each line and reading it. When you do those same tests with the same Again, it's the same text, the same words. What you see is people, they tend to kind of read the first line or two on the screen all the way through, and then they start to skim. And you can see rather than reading each line all the way through, they start to just go down kind of the margin and just read the first few words or letters of a line. And then they might, you know, something might grab their attention. They'll look across the whole line of text again. But what you can see is, is that the screen promotes skimming and scanning. You know, I, I think if we think about what we do when we're online, we can tell that this is true. We're trying to grab little bits of information of interest to us as quickly as possible and then go and look at something else. Even when you look at what our eyes are doing, which again tells us what our mind is doing as well, you see that the medium of the screen encourages a kind of reading that's very, very different mm. from reading anything in print. You know, there's there's many ways we can read and that's all of them are good. You know, sometimes you want to skim and scan, but there is something called deep reading that's really important if you want to get the full intellectual and emotional depth out of a out of a book and we're just not doing that as much anymore. Mhm. Well, it was an interesting thing because I have so notes, so many notes, I can't find it. But one of the things was talking about how you look in like it looks like the letter F, right. like your your eyes are bumping here to there to here to there. And you had a really cool phrase about the skimming. If I find it later, I want to say it because I okay. was really entertained by it. But you use these words and they so drew me in, calm, focused, and undistracted. And you're like, oh, I, I would really like that. Calm, focus, and undistracted, the linear mind is being pushed aside by a new kind of mind that wants and needs to take in and dole out information in short, disjointed, often overlapping bursts. The faster, the better. You say, my brain was hungrier, and the more I fed it, the hungrier it became. Even when I was away from my computer, I yearned to check. So talking about this scatterbrains, if you throw these words out there, I think everyone's like, I, I don't want to be a scatterbrain. I don't want to feel that pull all the time. I really would love to be calm and focused and undistracted. Is there a path there? Because I know you say once the technology's out, you say it was a sentence, once technologized, the world cannot be de-technologized. So is there still a path toward the calm, focused and undistracted mind? Well, 
There is, but let me start by saying it, it's not an easy path anymore. And also putting this into a more historical context, it's not like we all were paying deep attention to, to everything before the internet and computers and smartphones and stuff came along. If you look at the recent history, it's been harder and harder for people to pay attention for a couple of hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, just because there's more stuff to pay attention to, whether it's newspapers and magazines and books a long time ago or, or, or radio and TV, kind of media technology wants to grab our attention, wants to keep us distracted. So it's been a struggle for a long time. But what's different now is there's never been a technology that encourages us to shift our attention so quickly as online technology, as the internet and, and phones and so forth. So it becomes, as we've talked about, we adapt to this technology and we begin to think in the way the technology encourages us. It becomes very, very difficult to change these kind of habits. And that's particularly true of younger people who have grown up with phones or laptops or tablets from a very young age, what happens is they never really train themselves to shut off the flow of information, sit alone in their room and you know put together a, a model or read a book or whatever. So I think in order to shift out of this, we really have to change our habits, not only our individual habits, but our communal habits. Because the technology is so now wrapped up in our social lives that it has to be kind of a social movement that says, no, we don't expect everyone to be connected all the time in checking texts or checking emails or checking updates on their social media feeds all the time. It's not that looking at Instagram or TikTok for a little bit of time a day is bad, but it's that we're not taking the time to back away and train ourselves or retrain ourselves to actually be able to pay attention and to concentrate. So it requires personal effort of distancing yourself. And I mean that literally from your phone, for instance, spending time without your phone right next to you, going for walks without your phone, going to a restaurant without your phone and, and doing the same with your kids and, and stuff. But also, if we don't do it together as a society, it's going to be very, very difficult for individuals to make the choice, oh, I'm not going to be connected all the time. Because the social expectation now is that you are. So yes, I, I think we could change, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to mean really saying, is this the way we live or do, is there a better way where we have a better balance in the way we think, a uh, better balance between attentiveness and distraction? And we haven't been good at this so far. Even if a lot of people are concerned, we're not changing our behavior. We're not changing our habits. So am I optimistic? Not very. I, I do think there's a path to change, but we haven't shown the will to do that yet. I think books like yours help because they add to awareness of what's changing. And then I think you're a little bit more motivated to draw the line in the sand and put in the personal effort. I think that's a great word. I always say, parents of today, you're the ones who stand in the gap. Because when I was a kid, the TV just turned off. There was nothing else on. And so it didn't take the effort of the parent to step in and say no or turn the thing off. It just happened. And I think that's been a little bit of a shock because now I'm a parent and I have to place all these boundaries. Even though my parents did too, my parents had boundaries on how much television we could watch, but there just wasn't as much television to watch right. because the programming was so much less and you couldn't take it with you. 
Yeah. I mean, your TV sat in a certain place in a room. Right. And as you say, you didn't carry it with you. You didn't carry it when you went out to play or when you got older, you didn't carry it to your job. I think with the, particularly with smartphones and, and, you know, parents are giving phones to their kids at ever earlier ages. And a lot of this is because of social pressure. And I, and I don't envy parents who are, or are facing that struggle these days, but we have to recognize as soon as you give kids a phone, they can socialize around the clock. You know, it used to be before we had this personal technology that let us interact with our friends and, and other people all the time. You know, there were time when your friends weren't around. <laughs> right. And you were in your room and first you said, oh, I'm bored. But then you learned how to do something that interested you by yourself. And that was a very, very important part of your life. The social part, also very important. But kids had this kind of rhythm to their lives. Sometimes they were socializing and busy and talking to their friends, doing all sorts of things. And then other times things quieted down mm -hmm. uh, and you might resist that. But it was important to go through that process and it helped you learn other interests, helped you learn to amuse yourself, to broaden your own mind. As soon as a kid has a phone, you can socialize all the time and kids love to socialize. And particularly if they know that their friends are socializing, they want to be part of it. So all of a sudden that kind of rhythm that used to characterize young people's lives goes away and they're just always socializing. They yeah. never are thrown back on their own resources and, and forced to learn how to amuse themselves and pay attention to other things. And I think this is a very dramatic change in what it's like to grow up in this new technologized environment. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to even imagine because you hit on it in the book. You say kids tend to be compulsive about it, which it does seem like that. Like I'm okay to not respond to a text message for a bit, but for the kids you wrote, and I thought this was such a key thing, they risk being not seen. They risk becoming invisible if they stop sending the messages. And so what an environment to grow up in. And the kids are starting to talk about it. Yeah. The ones that are in their early 20s about how hard it's been to be a kid and how to socialize. And I think this goes along with, you talk in this book about these sort of imperceptible changes. And what's interesting is how quickly things have changed. So when I was a kid, I think we had six gigabytes on our family computer and everyone got one. And then you were, you were going over with your game. So you were taking the stuff of someone else's and they were mad. You're taking part of theirs, your memory and and you just think, well, what if we had 12, you know, yeah. what if, you know, and, and so there's this, you got YouTube, then you're like, well, what if I could have YouTube with me at all times? And you want it, but then it comes and then it continues to snowball. So you had said, which I thought is so funny, but we don't even talk about these things. Your original AOL subscription limited you to five hours online a week. That's right. It's like, well, what if we still had, nobody wanted that. Nobody wanted to be limited. But on the other hand, limiting is great. So we have these like, small changes that are happening that are adding up to these big things. And you can't predict really how it's going to continue to snowball. Yet, you know, you read books like The Singularity and it was like, it's doubling every year. Everything's doubling. It's never stopping. And you're like, well, what? Like, what else? What else could actually come? Like, I've got this phone in my pocket and now we're here and there are AI girlfriends. I mean, this is a thing that you can't expect what's coming. So in the last 15 years, what do we need to be aware of that's changed even more? Yeah. So, I mean, so, so continuing this line of thought, I mean, one thing that I think everybody 
can relate to and appreciate is how our perception of time has changed based on being connected. For those who are around and on computers 15, 20 years ago, when the internet was still new, you had dial-up connections. Everything was incredibly slow. You had to wait for a photograph to you know, come onto the screen and stuff to be rendered onto the screen. If you wanted to download a song, it took an hour. And ever since then, computers have sped up. Internet connections have sped up. We've gone to broadband. Everything gets quicker. And you very quickly adapt and expect that kind of very fast response. And I think we've all had the you know experience of suddenly, for some reason, our internet connection slowing down or our cellular connection on our phone slowing down. And even if it's just waiting a couple of seconds, it feels like it's forever, <laughs> you know, and, and you get very frustrated. And that shows you how the technology has changed our perception of time. There was a time not that long ago when you, when if there was a friend who lived in another town or another state, you'd send that person a letter and it would take a week or two to get the response and it didn't bother you. Now that would seem like an eternity. You know, you send a text to a friend and they don't respond in two minutes. You think, oh my gosh, something's wrong. You know, maybe they don't like me anymore. So the technology has changed our perception of time. And certainly I think in a way destroyed our patients, particularly in social situations, We've been trained to not wait anymore. And that becomes the way we act and the way we perceive. If we have to wait five seconds for you know a, a YouTube video to start, we'll jump out and do something else because we don't want to wait five seconds. So it really changes in a very deep way our ability to wait, our sense of time, our perception of patience. And it's very, very hard to go backwards because we do habituate ourselves to this new stream of information. So that's just an, you know, another example of how deep these changes are. Unfortunately, at this point, I'll say that there doesn't seem to be any, <laughs> any recognition that, hey, maybe, maybe if, it, if things slowed down a little, it would be better. We still want, and certainly the software developers and the hardware developers still want to make everything faster, higher volume, quicker. Yeah. That's just kind of, they know that, that even if we suspect that this isn't good for us, we still crave quicker stimulus. <laughs> it's a tricky problem yeah. because you do read those books about how, and you talk about in your book too, the speeds are doubling and they've been doubling every year. And you think, well, to what end? What could possibly be coming? And then outcome the virtual reality goggles. And now you can have an AI companion right. that knows everything about you. And and I, what I, from what I've read, this is the next big wave. All the money is getting dumped in. Somebody told me a statistic and I'm having a hard time finding exactly where they got it from, but something about how a swath of young men, I think it started in the teens, into 20s, I guess, were spending on average something like two hours a day with an online girlfriend. A fake, not not even, yeah. a, it's like a, an, an artificial intelligence girlfriend, but it's hitting all of these things that you talk about. Like it's always new. They're hitting all those things, right? It's all about you. They are specifically designed to ask you the questions that you want. I mean, it's wild to me. So when you read books like yours or like Neil Postman's, it reminds you to take a pause, I think, before you leap in, but that's tricky because everyone else seems to be leaping in 
And you say we would find it intolerable, most of us, if we had to go back. I love this sentence. Most of us would find it intolerable if we had to go back to computers that would only run one program or only open one file at a time. Then you think, oh, I remember that. Like, I remember having to stick the disk in, but you quickly forget it until someone else brings it up. So what do we do? Well, yeah, I I mean, I think... I think it's true. I, I think it, you're right that we're we're on the verge of this new, or we've entered into the new technology of AI, of chat GPT, of computers that not only, you know, up until now, computers, even though they've become so dominant in our lives, computers and phones, their role has basically still been as a transmission mechanism, you know, getting information or messages between people as quickly as possible. Now, with artificial intelligence, they're generating the information itself, whether it's using ChatGPT to write a term paper or having this online companion. And these are becoming more commonplace because the technology, frankly, you know, if you if you played around with these these tools, it's really good. <laughs> and it's only going to get better. It's only going to get better. And, and just like everything about computers, it's going to get better quickly. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash 1,000 hours. 
in this technology is kind of a mind reading technology. It knows, you know, for a long time, companies like Google and Facebook have kind of known what your mood is at any given moment and what you're, where you are, what you're likely to do next, who you're socializing with. Once you have all that information and you have this new technology that can turn it into a conversation, it becomes, you know, human beings are very social beings and we kind of tend to attribute social qualities to inanimate objects. We want things to socialize with. So if you get this very responsive, fake human being telling you things that are interesting to you and that are geared toward whatever you're interested in at the moment, it does become very compelling. Now, how this is going to play out, I do not know. But certainly, it's it kind of points to this world where we're not only talking to other people all the time, but we're talking to things that might not be other people, but we're having intimate conversations and sharing intimate details about our lives. And it's kind of, as I say, you can kind of understand it from a psychological perspective, but it is kind of scary, not only because it might mean that we find it easier to interact with machines than people, but the the companies operating those machines find out even more about us and are able to use that to manipulate our attention. Things are not slowing down, I think the bottom line is. I liked this phrase, the personal effort of distancing yourself. I thought that was really powerful because I think that's where we're at. And you said even, this was interesting. I want to point out a couple of things that I I loved this book. Thank you. Obviously, everybody loves the book. It's translated into 25 languages. So clearly, I am not an outlier here. I loved learning about the four different categories of technology. I just want to throw a couple of things out there so people read it because I think it's worth reading. And I thought it was fascinating that there are actually different kinds of technologies. And you talk about how these intellectual technologies have a lot of power. And you said the technologies, this is so fascinating, Nick. You wrote this book. In, it came out in 2010. The technologies that restructure language tend to exert the strongest influence over our intellectual lives. And that's where we're at. Right. And in fact, I'm, I've been working on a new book that looks more at social media and, and how that changes. And what's fascinating there is how language itself, uh, it's not only the speed of communication and how many people or who we talk to, it's the way we express ourselves. You may, you may remember back in like the late 1990s, kids got into instant messaging. You'd have a bunch of, bunch of instant messaging conversations going on on the home computer simultaneously. Your parents were really worried about it because they didn't know who you were talking to or anything. Um, and what kids started to, to do, and it's kind of a testimony to their, the ingenuity of kids, they started to develop a new language because you needed to express yourself very quickly and then jump to the other conversation. And so, they began to create what we now call text speak, you know, what we use when we're messaging, when we're texting and so forth, which is this very condensed kind of language. And it's very useful because you can, you can get quick thoughts out very, very quickly, but it's becoming now our dominant language. So even politicians now speak in text speak. Um, and it's great for speed, for getting things across very, very quickly, but I think it begins to reduce the expressiveness and the emotional depth and the intellectual depth of language because more and more now, we have to speak so quickly in these kind of highly symbolic language with lots of emoji, lots of abbreviations and stuff. So 
particularly since since smartphones and apps came along, I think we have seen this change in the way we express ourselves and the way we converse with others, which is it's fast and it's kind of ingenious that we've done this, but we we are losing some depth, I think, as we make this our, our kind of default language. Wow. So we see it affecting the reading. We see it affecting the conversations. We see it affecting the writing. That was one of the things that you talked about, which was the kind of, even the kind of books that are coming out now are different. There's a lot here. I love this book. Okay. <laughs> the Shallows, what the internet is doing to our brains. And then this is where I, I was so excited. I really was so excited about the Neil Postman thing. It came out near the end where you're talking about Taylorism and you were talking actually about his book, Technopoly, right. and not the one I've been talking about, Technopoly, but about how Google has basically adopted these premises and one of the premises was what cannot be measured okay i think this is a huge statement because i feel like this is how we raise children these days and maybe it's because of this or maybe it's because of the computers and all the data we have what cannot be measured either does not exist or is of no value yeah if you think about companies like google and facebook and people like mark zuckerberg very talented people, obviously, and, and very talented companies. But they've grown up with computers, they're programmers. What they value is efficiency of information exchange. Um, and you can measure this. You know, one thing the internet allows these companies to do is measure everything down to a fractions of a second. You know, if we show this message to people in blue type rather than red type, it takes them a fraction less time to respond to it. So we're going to use blue type. So there's these experiments going on all the time. What gets lost there is the fact that traditionally, at least, there's been a whole whole lot of human communication that is not about efficiency. Um, it's about something much more subtle. It's about you know facial expressions, uh, things that can't be measured, emotional tone of voice. These don't enter into the calculations at all of these companies. And so they rarely are emphasized when we're online, when we're communicating online, which we do more and more these days. And there, there have been a lot of other people who've written about this, a woman at MIT named Sherry Turkle, has, who's looked at how kids interact with technology a lot. And she sees that this kind of ethic of everything has to be very efficient, creeps in at a very deep level into how people express themselves, how they even think about themselves. And what you lose is this kind of nuance and subtlety, things that are hard to transmit through screens and are impossible to measure, but maybe very, very important to what it means to be a human being. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then the sixth one of the assumptions was, the affairs of the citizens are best guided and conducted by experts. And you said, they're in line with all of these six things, except in the end, they believe that the affairs of the citizens are best guided by algorithms. And that's what you wrote. It came out in 2010. This is a great book. We've got teenagers. This is going to be one we're reading as a family this year because it's so enlightening and eye-opening and fascinating. And you learn so much. I'm going to ask you one last question, but I wanted to read this couple of sentences that I absolutely loved. Because one of the things that you talk a lot about is information, the information overload. Neil Postman talked about that too, that it's all irrelevant. <laughs> like with the telegraph, that was the start of irrelevant information. Mostly people just knew about their communities. And now you live in Michigan and you're getting a telegraph from right. Texas. You're like, well, why? who cares? So I don't, why should I care? We're in this age where we're just constantly being 
thrown all of this information that maybe is not relevant and it's confusing and it's fracturing our attention. But you wrote, which I thought was so interesting, that you're talking about going into a library, a place that's got a lot of books, something calming in all of those books, their willingness to wait years, decades even, for the right reader to come along and pull them from their appointed slats. Take your time, the books whispered to me in their dusty voices. We're not going anywhere. Like the feeling of that. Right. Which is, unfortunately, I don't think, you know, because I can remember at college, even in local libraries, you know, going in and being around all these books. And there was no pressure to take in information as quickly as possible. It was like, okay, I'm going to find something that interests me now and I'm going to immerse myself in it. And I know these books are not going anywhere. And I think that sense has kind of vanished from the world. And let me tell you, I, I think parents bringing your kids to to libraries, not to go on the computers there, which is what a lot of people do at libraries these days, but to actually kind of find books to take your time is really important. And it's kind of still unpopular to say things like that, but you don't have to do everything all at once. It's nice to slow down. It's nice to not have tons of information coming to you all at once and to think, oh, you know, here's this book there that looks kind of interesting, but I can wait a few months until I look at that. If we could bring some of that patience in that sense that eh, there's time to do this, I don't have to do everything all at once, into our moment-by-moment lives, I think that would be all to the good. Mm -hmm. And it would lead to that brain that you were talking about, that calm, undisturbed, which just has such a pull to it. You talked about, Nick, your analog childhood. And the question that we always end with is, what's a favorite moment from your childhood that was outside? That was outside? Oh my gosh, there were, there were lots of them. I, uh, I grew up in a, in a house in a rural area, uh, suburban house, but in a kind of a rural area in Connecticut. And we happened to have, next to our house, there happened to be this vacant lot was, that was just woods. Um, and I can remember many times, you know, I've talked about how there were times when you were just at home and your friends weren't there. You didn't have technology to social media technology that was decades in the future. And some of my favorite memories are just, I'd be bored and want to do something. And I just kind of head out into this little acre or two of, of woods and there was a stream running through it and just kind of wander around and look at things and amuse myself. And so it's not even something that you know, it's not like I was doing something. I was just kind of wandering around by myself and enjoying it. And I think back on that kind of fondly and and also think that, gosh, somehow that was important to the, to the process of growing up, that ability to be by yourself, sometimes in a natural setting, no one else around, and just kind of look at things. <laughs> and, and I hope kids still these days, whether they live in cities or in the countryside or whatever, have time to just go out and be alone and experience the world, the natural world, the social world, whatever, kind of as it is without this kind of constant pressure to do something and respond to something. I guess I, I just think of those those moments that uh, I really value in looking back, even though it seemed like nothing was happening. Right, right. Isn't that interesting? It's never a flashy thing, some huge experience. It's that day-to-day simple 
stuff. And I think it's such a great reminder for parents that those things matter. Nicholas, phenomenal book. I know you've heard it a million times. The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, just one of many phenomenal books. People can find you at nicholascar.com. Follow along because you've got this new book coming out. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for what you're doing. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.